Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, help us hear your word, even when it's not the word we want to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some of you have heard me tell an old rabbinic story in a picnic Sunday sermon, but don't spoil it for your neighbor in the pew if you remember it. A nobleman is traveling through the countryside and he comes across a barn with many targets painted on the side. And remarkably, someone has shot an arrow into the bullseye of each target. And the nobleman is amazed. He himself is an archer who has won awards for his marksmanship, but he has never seen this kind of accuracy before. He goes to the modest house up the hill and he knocks on the door and a man answers, I have got to meet the archer who shot those arrows in the side of the barn. Was it you? No, answered the father with a groan. That would be my son, Enosh. Your son? May I speak to him? Enosh, come to the door. The nobleman is astounded when a boy, looking no older than twelve, appears. How did you gain the skill to hit the bullseye every time? The boy gives a guilty glance at his father. I shot the arrows into the side of the barn and then I painted the targets around them. I chose our passage by shooting an arrow into the side of the book of Jonah. Because Jonah is one of those books in the Hebrew scriptures where it is difficult, almost impossible, to preach on a single passage. The book of Esther is like that. It tells of a beauty pageant winner chosen to be queen, placed in a life she did not choose, robbed of her agency, as happened so often to women in that day, but then finding that she can be God's agent and intervening on behalf of her people. How do you lift a passage from that book without telling the whole story? The book of Job is like that. How do you isolate a passage, even the beautiful poetry, without at least reminding everyone of the story of the virtuous and prosperous Presbyterian elder with a nice home up Mill Mountain, having been stripped of his wealth, his family, his reputation, his dignity, everything except his life and his wife, who is quick to point out that he'd be better off dead. And the book of Jonah is like that. To isolate a passage out of Jonah is like trying to discuss a scene in the movie, The Sixth Sense, without talking about the ending. And if you don't know the ending, the movie came out before the turn of the century, so don't be shocked if someone spoils it for you. I'm going to read only a few verses from Jonah, but then we'll talk about the whole story. Listen for the word of God in both the passage and the story. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, 
Oh, Lord, is this, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The word of the Lord. So now let's paint the story around the arrow. I know many of you know the story already, or at least the part where Jonah finds himself in the belly of a whale, but maybe I can throw in some interesting observations along the way. Jonah is a prophet given a mission by God. We can be sure that Jonah is not running a scam, saying that he has heard a word from the Lord in order to get what he wants, because what he hears, he does not want. God is telling him to go on a mission trip to Assyria, to travel to Nineveh, the capital city located on the river Tigris, about 175 miles northeast of present-day Baghdad. Jonah is to preach, to call for Assyrian repentance so that they might be saved. Some context helps here. Israel had been split into two nations, the northern nation of the ten tribes of Israel and the southern nation of the two tribes of Jonah. Assyria invaded and obliterated the northern nation. Almost all self-identified Jews today are descendants of the two tribes of Judah because the northern ten tribes were almost lost to history surviving in the DNA of Samaritans and others who have lost their strong traditional ties to the Torah. And Jonah is to preach for Assyria's salvation? This past week, Millie and I went with Jeff and Jackie Luckett to see the new Mission Impossible movie. It begins, as all the Mission Impossible movies and TV episodes began, with Ethan Hunt hearing the instructions of the recorded message your mission, if you choose to accept it. And the mission is always impossible and impossibly dangerous. But Jonah would rather accept Ethan Hunt's kind of mission because at least Hunt gets to try to make bad things happen to terrible people. And you get to light some fuses and blow stuff up. What God wants Jonah to do sounds not only impossible, but also unthinkable. God should not be asking this. God has seen the evil of Nineveh. God has seen what Assyria did to God's people. If God would just provide the fuse, Jonah would only be too happy to light it. But no, God wants to save the city. God wants to save the people in the city that is in the center of a power that basically erased 10 tribes from history. Jonah is to go to Nineveh and ask these Nazis to see the error of their ways and become the kind of people God wanted Israel to be. And silly Jonah thinks that he has the same option Ethan Hunt is given to choose or to choose not to accept the mission. Jonah chooses not. 
He books passage to the port city of Tarshish in Spain, but God won't have it. God sends a terrible storm. The sailors and passengers are wind-whipped and bone-soaked. Their desperate prayers to their gods drowned out by the deafening thunder. And with the ship about to break in two, Jonah lets it out that maybe, maybe, he's the reason for their trouble because he disappointed God by being on this boat in the first place. Now that is a problem the sailors can fix. And Jonah is tossed into the sea where he is swallowed by a beast. Call it a whale if you wish, it doesn't harm anything, but the text doesn't. This is some kind of sea monster. And the beast swims to an Assyrian beach and spits Jonah on the shore. Jonah gets it now. This is not a mission he can refuse to accept. Jonah makes his way to the outskirts of Nineveh, and with the kind of delivery one would expect of someone of weak voice and bad attitude, Jonah preaches about the sins of the Assyrians and the carnage they could expect if they continue to be agents of carnage. The reluctant prophet doesn't for a minute think that his impossible mission will succeed, and that is just fine with him. God, watch them ignore the warning, and then show me the fuse. Only it works. Jonah wanted to light a fuse that would lead to an explosion, but not the explosion of a revival. People hear his sermon. It shakes them up. They pass it along. They send the link. Even the king of Assyria hears a podcast of what Jonah had to say and takes it to heart. I've seen the trailer for the new movie, Napoleon, where the emperor says, I am the first to admit when I make a mistake. I simply never do. It is not normally the spiritual gift of dictators to recognize their wrongs and confess the errors of their expansionistic ways, but somehow the Assyrian king comes to understand the human cost that has come of the destruction of other nations, and he repents. He repents, and he calls for the repentance of the Assyrian people. And Jonah sees it happen. He sees how the sermon fuse he let leads to a revival, and he doesn't like it a bit. He expresses what he thinks in righteous indignation, or at least he thinks it is righteous indignation. God only hears the indignation for what it is, familiar whining. We've heard it. We've said it. I knew it. I told you. This is what you always do. You're supposed to have our back, God, to always be on our side. But I knew you were going to be merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and not give them what they deserve. You know, sometimes people who whine get their way with me because I just want the noise to stop. That's Jonah's ploy hoping his whining might actually change God's mind. He builds a booth on a hill overlooking the city to see what happens. But God is in the same pestering mood he was in when he had this great beast gulp Jonah down. God provides a tree to offer even more shade for Jonah and then takes the shade away, leaving Jonah stewing in the heat, picking at him. Sounds petty. 
But God is getting Jonah's attention to make a point. He says to Jonah, is it right that you are angry? There are 125,000 people that you are hoping will die. And the story ends, leaving Jonah caught in the inner war of two faiths. That's Jonah's problem. His problem is not that he lacks faith. No, his faith is deep and it's profound. Fred Craddock, yes, this remains the summer of Craddock inspiration. Craddock says that Jonah's faith is Abraham and Sarah deep. His faith is Exodus deep. His faith is Israel deep. He has the faith of his parents and his grandparents and their parents all the way back to the beginning. Jonah's faith is that God is the God of his people and also is the God of creation. The faith is joined in the promise that God made to Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great. And in you and through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And do you hear the tension in that promise? God chooses one people to bless all people. That is a hard tension to maintain. And if we're not careful, it can break in two. On the one hand, and this is not Jonah's problem, but on the one hand, if one's faith becomes only about God being the God of all creation and of all people, faith can just melt into relativism and lose its moral core. Being totally accepting may sound fair, but inevitably it becomes accepting of injustice. The thoughtless embrace of inclusion sacrifices justice on the altar of fairness. If annihilating people works for the Assyrians, who can say that it's wrong? It's their culture. No, no, no. Have mercy on our world. No, 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 no. There are lines that are not to be crossed. But that's not Jonah's problem. His problem comes of the other side of the tension. If one's faith is only about the blessing of one people, then the faith slides into tribalism, into nationalism. Jonah, you see, is a Jewish believer, devout, but he has almost become a Jewish nationalist. He has cause. Lines have been drawn, and on one side are God's people, the Jews, and ten of their tribes have been obliterated, and on the other side are the obliterators, the Assyrians, who deserve hellfire rained down upon them. But I said, almost. Jonah cannot extinguish with him the other side of the faith of Abraham, that God is the God not only of his people, but of all people. He still believes it, and it's tearing him up. It's why he has fled to Tarshish, because he knows that God is the God of mercy. It's why he then preached so weakly on the outskirts of Nineveh, because he knows that God not only loves Abraham, but also loves the world. It is why Jonah now pouts in the shade, because he knows that those he so reasonably hates are those who God so graciously loves. I told a rabbinic story earlier in the sermon. I've got another one to tell you. 
It is set in the time of Exodus. When it's time to get the slaves out of Egypt and into the promised land, God is so busy that he appoints a task force of angels to help out by handling Red Sea duties. And the angels see the Israeli slaves approaching the sea, running for their lives, and the angels part the sea to allow them through. And then they see the Egyptian soldiers pursuing them with their chariots, their spears, and their bloodthirsty shouts, and they wait for the right moment. Israelis, get through, get through, get through. Hold it, hold it, hold it now. And the timing is perfect. Waters come crashing over the Egyptians, men and horses tossed about, many drowning, and the angels fly up and down, give each other high fives, bump each other in the chest, shouting, we got them, we got them. And God hears the racket, and he tells them that they are no longer in his service. Why? We got them. And with hurt in his voice, God replies, don't you know? The Egyptians are also my children. Jonah knows that story. He pouts because he knows that it is true. All the world belongs to God. He knows that it's just like God to care for people like the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Iraqi and the Taliban and the Russian invaders. And this tension of faith that keeps us caught in the middle, it won't go away. It's never gone away. We see it in Jesus saying that he has come first for his people, but then later taking his ministry to Samaritans and Gentiles. We see it in the Council of Jerusalem where Jewish disciples insist that a collection be taken for the poor of Jerusalem and Paul insisting that dietary laws be ignored and taken the gospel to Gentiles. We see it when St. Augustine saves the Roman Christian church by reminding them that the fall of the Roman Empire does not mean the end of God's church or God's kingdom. We see it during the 1500s with intention is broken and theological arguments become nationalistic wars resorting in astounding bloodlust and genocides. And again in the 20th century in Germany, when most of the German church supported the Nazi drive to German supremacy and racial purity, and while the confessing church remembered that God is the God of all people. Second Presbyterian Church exists to be what St. Augustine called the church to be, a colony of the kingdom. We are planted in this city and among these people. And so we American citizens who love our families, our community and our country, we rightfully pay our taxes. We serve in the military. We cast our votes. We work for the betterment of those who are around us, those who are within our gates. But in this place, in this sanctuary, we remember who we are ultimately, and we keep that tension alive. We don't let our faith break into two. We pray for our enemies, and we work for the blessing of all people. While it is admirable and commanded to love our families and community, and while it's admirable to love and serve one's country, the Bible and our theological tradition demands that our core identity is in the cross. It's in Christ. This 
is where we pray for our enemies and work for compassion and justice for all people. And sometimes we do that while pouting. But let's remember how God likes to pick at those who pout. And we might rather avoid the belly of the beast and remain in the shade. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.